This is not the media. This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. Today on This is Hell, we are continuing our series of interviews with correspondents, contributors, past guests, and who knows, maybe some people who have never been on our show before to find out what the coronavirus pandemic is like where they are, what's happening in their community and within their own lives during this age of the virus. We started the segment a few weeks ago when we spoke with our man in San Juan, Dave Buchan, who told us how Puerto Rico is dealing with the pandemic and after being hit by an earthquake and still recovering from hurricanes that made landfall way back in 2018. Then we talked to our correspondent in Budapest, Todd Williams, who described a Hungary still under the authoritarian rule of Prime Minister Viktor Orban and how Orban's power has expanded during the virus. And last week, we talked to award-winning video game designer of Thumper fame, Mark Fleury, who has been giving us some morning calm from Seoul, South Korea, since at least 2015 and probably sooner. But our archives are a mess, so it's kind of hard to tell if you want to support us in our cleanup of our archives and get them posted for all to see and share online. Go to thisishell.com and click on support. Mark told us why South Korea responded far better than the United States and why he is so concerned for the people back here in the States where Mark has Mark was born and raised, where much of his family and many of his friends live because... Like so many, including me, Mark doesn't have much faith in the self-discipline of our society back here in the U.S. This week, in that continuing segment, we are going down to Brazil to hear from our correspondent in Sao Paulo, editor and correspondent Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South. Brian was on most recently in November when we spoke with him about the release from prison of former President Lula Inácio da Silva. Uh, sorry. President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Brian is also co-hosting a new podcast, Coronavirus Dateline Sao Paulo. That's Coronavirus Update. Dateline, Sao Paulo. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. You can find Brazil Wire at BrazilWire.com and you can find Telesur English at TelesurEnglish.net. And of course, we'll wrap up this week as we do most weeks with a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. And this week, Jeff shares part two of The Good Doctor, the four-part fictional expose of a man who betrayed his calling in exchange for fame and fortune. And I don't know about you, but last time I got the distinct impression, Jeff's expose was about a doctor. I will not out. But let's just say I think his name rhymes with true Minsky. And if you've ever had a true Minsky, you know they are delicious. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Anything new about you, Alex, since the last time we talked yesterday? Uh, if I used Zoom, which I just have not updated or put on my computer yet, if I use Zoom, I was talking to my wife about it. You know the best background for that is if you're dialing into a meeting or anything like that? The hallway from The Shining. It's like <laughs> free, free advice for anyone who uh, wants to crack up their coworkers. Because uh, I'm not doing it, but uh, it's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, my girlfriend's been involved in family Zoom calls for the last know, week or so. And I do everything I can to not have anything to do with them. I make it so she is 
positioned in a way where I will never be walking around in the background to have nine people yelling at me, wanting to talk to me simultaneously. It sounds like a nightmare, man. Zoom just sounds really... I've only seen it a couple of times, and both times it just seemed like it was just horrible. Have you tried it at all? No, I don't want to talk to people. <laughs> I don't want to talk to nine people at the same time we're screaming at each other, you know? It's like a Brady Bunch nightmare. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this week's question, Mel, is what are you standing six feet from? What are you standing six feet from? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins ten. Count them ten. This is health advertising sticker, so you too can subvert outdoor advertising or whatever you want to subvert with the words, this is hell. Perfect time to do it now under the virus. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Alex, let's hear more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Uh, what are you six feet away from? What are you six feet away from? Mark R. says four more years of Trump. <laughs> Max I. says six feet beneath the moon. Adam A says, if you're six feet under, everything. So just a friendly reminder to stay the hell home. (laughs) Tobias M says, the abyss. Fabio L says, anyone out of melee range. (laughs) It's very good. What are you six feet away from? What are you six feet away from? Greg M says, total self-actualization. Is that hyphenated? I can never remember. <laughs> Chandler H. says, Not my coworkers were packed in like sardines in the post office. That's frightening as hell. Psalm S. says, Amount of time I spend lurking on the web, another six feet, and I'd qualify as a spider. <laughs> what are you six feet away from? What are you six feet away from? Brian S. says, The toilet. Realizing why that bidet attachment was only $12. <laughs> I was wondering why those things were only $12, too. Uh, Benjamin C. says, The TV remote. Garrett S. says, Enlightenment. Adam K. says, arguments about presidential candidates. <laughs> Andrew S. says, any healthy food in my house. And Mark C. says, my final resting place. Oh, wait, i got to add this one because I want to end on it. <laughs> what are you six feet away from? Sebastian M. says, Karen. <laughs> I thought that was exceptional. <laughs> I thought that was so great. Oh, my God. Oh, that is so fantastic. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Alex, I got to ask you a question. Have you, do you, did you ever go out with anybody named Karen? No, I don't think I, I can't think of a person I know named Karen. I know only one Karen and she's not a Karen which is really crazy it's the craziest thing she's a a teacher who never used drugs but she went on strike or did a huge protest at her school because they were forcing all the teachers to take urine tests for drugs but she never used drugs so she was like the opposite of a Karen the Karen I know Karen rules I know exactly it's the only Karen I've ever met which is weird but Karen is such a perfect name this is a pro Karen podcast now. <laughs> exactly I don't get it all right, uh, let's see. This is how the best radio show your best friend has never heard. So after 24 years, don't you think it's about time you quit keeping your enjoyment of This Is Hell all to yourself? Personally, I find it selfish, but that's just me. As a former Michigander and someone who was born in Detroit, raised in a town that no longer exists, called East Detroit, as barely a graduate of East Detroit public schools, despite 
Two of the three schools I attended no longer being schools. One has been become a community center and the other has been torn down. As a failed student in the Michigan State University system, as a former employee of the state of Michigan, being part of their Michigan Youth Corps program from which I was fired for getting high on the job, I feel it is my duty as a former citizen of the Great Lakes State and I need to explain that I need to explain actions of my former fellow citizens yesterday during what was being called Operation Gridlock that shut down traffic in Michigan's capital, Lansing. Traffic, mind you, that had already been shut down for weeks. <laughs> That's how stupid the whole protest was. They created Gridlock, a traffic jam, when there was no traffic but them. We're going to shut down the Capitol. Uh, yeah, the Capitol's already shut down. Who cares? We're going to do it anyway. You know, the media will show up, and all of a sudden, a couple hundred people walking around an empty town in the rain will have political legitimacy. Thanks, media, for making a stupid protest seem rational. So maybe I can make some sense, some rational thoughts out of what is happening with my former res- as a former resident of the state of Michigan. All right. So what pissed off the protesters? A few weeks ago, Michigan put in place its own quarantine or sheltering in place rules as determined by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Whitmer, you may remember, was the governor who complained that Michigan was not getting the necessary medical equipment to fight the global pandemic because she had made critical remarks about President Trump and therefore the needed help was being slowed or stopped altogether. You can't be mean to Trump because if you are... You'll allow people in your state to die. That's how thin his skin is. Whitmer had also been critical of the national response to COVID-19 and uh, not being a national response, being patchwork, being determined on a state-by-state basis, which is the truth. But that also angered Trump, even though it is a process that is actually supported by and promoted by Trump. This had made Whitmer a target of the always Trumpers, those who support President Trump no matter what he does, the ones who, if President Trump really did shoot someone in the middle of the street in New York City and nobody did a damn thing like he predicts, these are the protesters who would be the people reloading Trump's gun and telling him, good job, nice shot. To them, Trump is above criticism. criticism. And if you do criticize Trump, you hate America. You are anti-American, you're a traitor. They believe Trump is the United States of America, and anyone who disagrees with them is their and the nation's enemy. So, Governor Whitmer protests the federal government's ability to address the crisis, and all the Fox News trolls come out from under their bridges to protest the Trump protester. Yep, all these people who are so anti-government, who are so anti-national debt, who are so anti-deficit, who are so anti-diplomacy with nations they see as our enemies. Whenever Trump does anything that they have complained Democrats have been doing for the past 40 years, it's suddenly okay. That's because their politics do not represent any values that they hold. Politics is just a game, and all they want is their team to win at any cost, even if that cost is a cost to them, like, you know, loved ones dying from a plague. But Michiganders were not committing to self-quarantine, and as the state's biggest city, Detroit was suddenly becoming a hotspot for the virus. White people who lived outside the city and the suburbs fled even farther away from the urban areas and retreated to their summer retreats up north. Problem is, if you come from an area where there is an outbreak whether you know it or not. You may be bringing the virus up north with you, spreading it to the hinterlands, the rural areas, where, you guessed it, medical care facilities are few and far between. Why? Well, because there are people who have a set of beliefs that state the market can fix everything, the state is too big, and we need lower taxes. You know, Trump supporters like the ones 
who live year-round, where people who are seeking refuge from the virus have their second home. And now those people up there who live in your vacation land all year are pissed off. There's no work in the area but tourism. Even the jobs not directly linked to tourism depend upon tourism. That Walmart in town can't survive on only townies coming up and shopping in that store. They need that uh, weekly influx of extra spending money from carefree tourists who are celebrating the little time away from work that they get. Even auto repair shops. Every store depends on tourism. Without tourists, these towns know they have nothing. They've been skating by on the extra cash from those city dwellers they hate so much for so long they're now being forced to face up to how much they need city folk for their survival. You've heard of essential workers. Tourists are essential customers up there. Without tourism, with all of us sheltering in place in the city, unable to travel for vacation, rural areas depending on tourism are going to collapse because they don't have anything else. And as we have learned on this show, tourism spreads inequality. And when the rich people aren't there, that's all that's left of that inequality is the poor scraping by on whatever they can, waiting for customers or tourists to return their place to normal. But before the governor put her order in place last Saturday, some had already fled north to their second home. Self-quarantine is not American because it means not being able to go out and shop and get whatever you can afford, whenever you can afford it. It means not having the liberty to go drive around, not having the freedom to go to work. Freedom to go to work. Think about that. Up north, away from the city, and all those people, you can breathe fresh air. You can have the freedom to do whatever you want, including not sheltering in place, not washing your hands, not wearing a face mask, and not social distancing. Up there, you can find the freedom that the city and big government has taken away from you. In fact, the protest yesterday in Michigan was supposed to observe social distancing by everyone staying in their cars and driving circles around the Capitol. But it didn't take long for a bunch of people to realize it was a waste of gas they would likely need to drive back home. So they got out and walked, the vast majority of them, without face masks, not social distancing, but many were carrying American flags, which I'm sad to report do not, I repeat, do not protect you from the coronavirus, no matter what American exceptionalism may tell you. Now, the problem with those who did flee to their second homes up north before the gov governor instituted the no-travel rule was, by then, locals had gotten wind of how severe the outbreak had become because Fox News had switched from telling them not to worry about the virus as it was a hoax to impeach President Trump. They'd switched from that line, that narrative, to telling their audience they had never said it was a hoax to impeach Donald Trump, and that the virus was actually deadly serious. So local newspapers started telling everyone who was fleeing north that once they did get to their second home, to not come out, not go to the store, not go get firewood, not go get beers, not do anything but lock yourself up in your second home for the first two weeks you are up north, under the assumption there's a likelihood you could be a carrier. And without many hospitals or medical personnel within an hour drive in any direction, your chances are of dying just increased greatly now up north, having escaped the hellscape you have left behind, and you still can't go outside. All these rich people in their summer homes, all these customers locked up instead of being fleeced by locals, they had had enough. And there they were yesterday, walking in the rain, causing gridlock in an area that hasn't seen any traffic for weeks, going without masks, without gloves, but protecting their liberty to die with an American flag, all because... 
they know of tourists who they depend upon for their livelihoods, who make their communities sustainable, can't visit their second homes, can't rent cottages and hotel rooms this summer, can't go out to eat at local restaurants, drink in local bars, shop at local stores, then their community is finished. Their communities will no longer be sustainable and it will no longer be possible to live there and they will have become overrun by even more intense poverty than that is imposed by the inequality of tourism. They were out there protesting yesterday because Trump doesn't like Whitmer and they love Trump. They were protesting because Fox News has trained them to protest anyone Trump does not like. They were protesting because they live in communities with precarious economies that depend upon the people from the big city whose politics they loathe but whose money they love. They were protesting because even though they found their little slice of heaven in the idyllic woods, rivers, streams, lakes, and forests of the hinterland, all it takes is one crisis of capitalism, one pathogen that becomes a virus leading to an outbreak in a global pandemic that can destroy their entire world, even from far away. Out in the sticks where they thought they would be safe as a prepper in a cement bunker 50 feet underground, they find themselves vulnerable. They were protesting because they're learning that no matter where they go, where they hide, they cannot get away from the world that they've helped create, the world we're all complicit in, the world that is unequal, unfair, and totally dependent upon the crumbs that fall from the table of the uber-wealthy, who these people out in the hinterland somehow idolize while groveling on the floor for whatever bit may have accidentally fallen, a bit that the wealthy will not even notice is gone. And they will say, thank you, because this is hell coming up on This Is Hell. We continue our series of reports from our correspondents around the world. This time we'll hear what's happening in Brazil. And it's not only the global pandemic that Brazilians are suffering from right now. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin shares part two of The Good Doctor, the four-part fictional expose of a man who betrayed his calling in exchange for fame and fortune. And more of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as announcing this week's winner. And we will tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show live stream and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is Hell. We are continuing our series of reports from correspondents, contributors, and past guests here on This Is Hell on what is happening with COVID-19 where they are this week. We go to Sao Paulo, Brazil, where we find editor and correspondent Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brian. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Brian is also now co-hosting a new podcast called Coronavirus Update, Dateline Sao Paulo. You can follow Brian on Twitter at... Brian M. Telesur, find Brazil Wire online at brazilwire.com and find another place where uh, Brian also writes Telesur English at telesurenglish.net. Brian, first, we're starting all these reports we're getting on COVID-19 with the same kind of question. And I guess the first most important question is the same thing we asked Dave in San Juan, Todd in Budapest, uh, Mark in Seoul. How are you and yours doing when it comes to your health? Has anyone in your family contracted COVID-19? Well, Chuck, um, I went to Venezuela in the last couple days of January. On the flight back to Brazil, I got a dry, repetitive cough. I arrived in Sao Paulo, got 103.5 degree fever, went to the public health clinic, 
and was diagnosed with pneumonia, a pneumonia that took, you know, a really long time to go away. And then it was just followed by like massive, massive coughing for a month and a half. And I'm still taking two different kinds of cortisodes. And um, the doctor says it's because I damaged bronchial tubes or something. But I'm wondering, you know, I'm like seriously wondering if that wasn't coronavirus. Right. And that's one of the questions I want to ask you about, because you posted online on Tuesday that a new study has come out by Brazil's Health, uh, Health Intelligence Operations Center, a research group uh, comprised of Fiocruz and several of uh, Brazil's top medical and public health university departments. Fiocruz is the Osvaldo Cruz Foundation, a scientific institution for research and development in biological sciences located in Rio de Janeiro. It's considered one of the world's uh, main public health research institutions. And you add they looked at national hospitalization data, which is updated daily and death records and have come to the conclusion that the official government numbers in Brazil for coronavirus infections only represent around 8% of total cases. In other words, the number of people infected is around 12 times higher than official numbers. Now, a lot of these numbers have been underestimated and underreported and not in any, you know, it's times with governments it's been intentional, but other times it hasn't been intentional. Like with your situation, with something that was diagnosed as pneumonia, a lot of people seem to have, uh, there seem to have been a rash of deaths and a a rash of uh, an outbreak of pneumonia in December and January. And they're saying, yeah, exactly like you're saying here, 12 times more in Brazil. They're saying that the number of cases here in the U.S. might be 10 times more and the number of deaths might be 10% more. So to what degree do you even trust? I mean, you don't, I know you're no big fan of the Bolsonaro government to begin with. To what degree do you trust any numbers that are coming out of the Bolsonaro government when it comes to the virus? Well, Chuck, I think that we're down here in Brazil, we're in a very similar situation to you guys in the U.S. in the sense that we have an insane, evil, and very entertaining clown president was almost like a diversionary person out there to fleece the public well big capital robs everyone blind you know with this daily clown show of crazy tweets but we have a health minister who is actually like a medical doctor who he's no great shakes but he actually like believes in quarantine and and understands medicine and things like that and so he's constantly just like dr fauci is in the u.s contradicting what the president says telling people to respect quarantines and things like that. Um, so, and he, he's repeatedly said he thinks the numbers are way too low and that they have testing bottleneck issues, you know? So I don't think that the, the Brazilian National Ministry of Health is deliberately generating misinformation. I feel like other sectors of the government might be choking off their ability to buy enough tests to test people. And so I don't believe the statistics coming out of the government right now, but I think there's a logic behind them. And I do believe Fiocruz, which uh, I should mention, you you introduced, explained who they are, Instituto Oswaldo Cruz. They're public. They're part of the Brazilian public health system, mainly run by women epidemiologists, doctors, and sociologists. And they have offices in 16 states across the Brazil. Their budget last year was about half the size of the operating budget of the WHO. They're one of the public health institutions that wasn't significantly damaged when coup president Michel Temer butchered public health spending, when Bolsonaro continued making health cuts. Instituto Fiocruz kept operating with a decent-sized budget. And they can 
fabricate their own vaccines and medicine. And the WHO just recognized them as a reference for a coronavirus pandemic. And the only other reference organization in the Americas is CDC. So I believe when they create an estimate with university medical and public health departments based on national analysis of health records, I think their numbers are probably pretty accurate. Um, you know, so at least we have somebody who's doing something. You know? <laughs> at least we have somebody doing something. That's pretty reassuring. Uh, so uh, you were in Venezuela in January. Uh, why were you there? And had you seen anything related to the coronavirus uh, happening yet? Was there any kind of outbreak yet? Because of what I'm curious about is to what extent do you think Venezuela is completely unprepared for any kind of pandemic? No, that's um, no. I Venezuela is doing better than any country in Latin America right now wow. handling the pandemic. They've done more tests. They've done they, their population is like one fifth of Brazil's population, and they've done like ten times more tests already. You would think, so, though, from uh, all of the sanctions against them, all the trade sanctions that the United States is imposing, the kind of blockade with the Navy that the United States has against Venezuela, that they wouldn't be doing well. So what explains to you why they are doing so well? Because, first of all, um, China is helping them with tests and medication, right? China's delivered 30,000 um, patients' dosage volumes of hydrochloroquine, which... It's unusual, you know, but Chinese government's using it. I don't believe what Trump and Bolsonaro are saying about it, but it must have some limited purpose. If otherwise, the Chinese wouldn't be using it. And they've delivered, you know, um, hundreds of thousands or millions of tests. So they're getting some support from China. And China, you know, as you know, China is supporting a lot of places around the world right now. I didn't see any evidence of um, coronavirus in Venezuela. And I don't think I got it in Venezuela if I had it. I think I caught the pneumonia during this international flight in which I had to change uh, planes in Panama City. And it was, I mean, at the time it was full of Chinese people with masks on. And I was like, oh, Chinese people, they're always so cautious about pandemics and things like that. I didn't think anything of it at the time, but I feel like if I got it, I must've got it somewhere in an airport, you know, I, because then even, even today, the number of cases in Venezuela are really low. So, and, and I think it's because their country was already like semi-isolated from international travel to begin with. And they're not getting a lot of international travel there, like Sao Paulo is, for example. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you were mentioning the budget cuts to healthcare in Brazil uh, under Tamer and then under Bolsonaro. Uh, are the Brazilians regretting those budget cuts? Is there criticism right now, popular criticism, not just from uh, his opponents already, Bolsonaro's opponents already? Is there a lot of po uh, popular criticism right now around those health care cuts that Tamer and Bolsonaro put in place after the overthrow in the coup of Dilma and Lula? Yeah, uh, there is, of course, there is. Um, what Temer actually did was he pushed through a constitutional amendment. First of all, he cut off, he canceled a, a decree that Dilma made in which she allocated 100% of profits from the state petroleum company, Petrobras, to public health and education. So the first thing he did when he got into office was cancel that. Then he pushed through a constitutional amendment um, freezing public health spending for 20 years. In a, you know, in a country with inflation and with a growing population. And then Bolsonaro took office and Dilma Rousseff had created this 
wonderful program called More Doctors in partnership with the Pan American Health Organization, which imported 8,000 doctors from Cuba to address a historic problem in the Brazilian public health system, which is that doctors in Brazil are typically from the upper middle class. They're snobby and they want to live in the big cities. So we have a situation where all, all the big cities are full of doctors driving around in their fancy cars and nobody wants to work in the small towns in the countryside, in rural areas or in favelas. And so she opened up all of these positions and everywhere where a Brazilian didn't apply or didn't want it, she brought in a Cuban. So we had 11,000 Cuban doctors at one point and Bolsonaro just sent them all home for ideological reasons, you know, because they're communists. So as the, as the pandemic hit Brazil, there were 33 million Brazilian people living in counties that didn't have one doctor in the public health system, just nurses and maybe an ambulance system to take someone in to, a, to another town if they had a serious problem. So how has the public reacted then to the response by the government to COVID-19? Is, could this lead to, again, a change back to politics that are more aligned with Dilma and Lula because of all the mistakes that Tamara made, because of all the mistakes that Bolsonaro made? Well, Chuck, what we see now is that the middle class has completely broken from Bolsonaro, like most of the middle class. So we've had this situation of nightly protests in middle-class neighborhoods where every time Bolsonaro comes on TV, they come out on their balconies and bang pots and pans and yell out with Bolsonaro, which are very similar to the middle-class protests against Dilma in 2016. So we see he's lost the middle class. All he has now really are his core base of fascist supporters, which is like 15% of the Brazilian electorate. And another 15% of the electorate that's kind of like, they still kind of support them, but not in a fanatical way. So right now, 67, to be precise, 67% of the population uh, thinks he's doing a poor job. And in terms of coronavirus response, 76% of the population supports his health minister. And he's only got about 30% public support, even though he's trying to fire the guy right now because he won't speak out against quarantines. So what do you think would happen if he did fire him? What would be the response by the public? I mean, because uh, I just keep thinking, Brian, that the public just doesn't have, and this is a horrible thing to say, but the public just doesn't have much power within Brazil, that the government is something that was imposed upon them and certainly not something that they maybe wanted. Uh, you're correct, you know, but there is a percentage of the population that still hates the PT party and... Um, and there's, like I said, about 30% of the population thinks Bolsonaro is still doing a good job. So it's a, but, but I think um, since the coup, there's a general feeling that I would say similar to what ha just happened in the U.S. primaries, which is like the electoral system isn't working anymore. You know, I mean, you see the way that um, the media and the Democratic Party itself sabotaged Bernie Sanders' campaign and the way that labor... Uh, conservative forces inside labor sabotaged Jeremy Corbyn's campaign in partnership with the media. It's very similar to the way they destroyed the the image of Lula and Dilma in the media, and um, not the same kind of party participation in it, you know. But it's similar. But now we see the center right is beginning to 
soften its relationship a lot with the PT party. The PT, together with some of the center-right parties, pushed through a measure to give like um, 1.2 minimum salaries to families that were employed in the informal economy before the, vi the quarantines hit. Um, and, you know, that was done with PT and other parties. And now the governor of Sao Paulo is like center-right from the PSDB party, former reality uh, show star from Donald Trump's Brazilian franchise apprentice and a general clownish guy. He's fighting really hard to keep the quarantine going. And him and Lula have kind of like complimented each other on this issue, you know? Like Lula said, we have to give credit when credit is due. You know, this guy deserves credit. And then he was like, oh, thanks, Lula. You know, I admire your opinion on this issue as well. So there might be some kind of new proximity as the middle class breaks away from Bolsonaro between some of these center and center-right traditional political parties in the PT again. And hopefully, if we have mayoral elections this year, the results will be seen in the mayoral elections. You had an article at Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting's website, fair.org, headline, Bolsonaro is far from alone in putting profits over lives, but he is a useful scapegoat. You point out how in the Western media, we're seeing a lot of criticism of Jair Bolsonaro's reaction to COVID-19, but you see it is not much different from that of Boris Johnson or Donald Trump. Yet you see in the media uh, far more attacks on Bolsonaro than Trump or Johnson. To you, what explains the exact same actions being taken by Bolsonaro as Trump and Johnson being far more criticized in the Western media than the actions of uh, the, as they are with Bolsonaro? Well, I'm not trying to say that nobody's attacking Trump's coronavirus response in the media. But what, what I'm saying, though, is that there's a lot of attention being drawn and there's a lot of media people differentiating between Trump and Bolsonaro trying to emphasize how much worse Bolsonaro is. And I believe it's a diversionary tactic, you know, to hide the fact that so many people in the U.S. business community and so many U.S. politicians also want to end quarantine because what Bolsonaro is saying is not different in any substantive way from what Donald Trump's saying. In fact, it looks like he's just copying Trump, even publicly threatening to fire his health minister on Twitter and things like that, like almost down to the T, everything he's doing is what Trump did. You know, calling it the Chinese virus, you know, uh, having his sons on Twitter saying it was created in a lab in China. And I mean, almost everything is just identical to Trump. So it's funny to see in the Atlantic, you know, the, a big article saying the, the international Corona virus movement has a new leader and that, um, Bolsonaro's words and actions make Trump appear to be logical and scientific when it's just exactly the same thing he's doing. I feel like it's just kind of like anywhere but here tactic to just divert attention away from people like, the, you know, even the New York Times has run op-ed pieces in favor of ending this quarantine. You know, even Thomas Friedman's saying it. So we know that a large percentage of our business elites in the U.S. and in internationally just don't care how many people die from this thing. They want the economy functioning, even though it doesn't make any sense from an economic standpoint to end the quarantine. Because as Henrique Mireles, the former president of the Brazilian Central Bank, said yesterday, 
All that will happen if you lift the quarantine early is there'll be a short-term economic benefit as some commerce starts kickstarting. Then there'll be panic as people start dying and as the infects, you know, as the disease spreads quickly through the population. Then they'll have to do longer quarantines afterwards. But they get those short-term profits, and I'm just afraid that they're going to prioritize those short-term profits over the long-term long-term deaths of people, far more people than were necessary to die. Do you think that this might, because you're pointing out to uh, Jair Bolsonaro how he just mimics a lot of the things that Trump does, and there are other leaders around the world who take the lead from Trump. Do you think that we're going to see any rollback, any cracks in the exportation of Trumpism around the world from the coronavirus? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, it it's terrible to say it, but like it depends really like on the body count maybe because both Trump and Bolsonaro are kind of setting things up so that if not as many people die as were originally prote- projected, they can say they were right the whole time saying that they should end quarantine. And now that the economy's crashed, it's the liberals' fault for pushing for quarantine. I'm a little bit worried about that maybe happening, although obviously it's much better to have less people die. You point to a recent Guardian editorial, The Guardian View on Jair Bolsonaro, a danger to Brazilians from March 31st. And you write, it criticized Bolsonaro for decrying quarantine restrictions, touting unproven remedies and dismissing physical distancing. But the paper did not go as far as to suggest that Brazil's right-wing extremist president step aside as its sister publication, The Observer, did on March 19th. And they did with the, I'm sorry, they did with Brazil's former social democratic president, Dilma Rousseff, during the right-wing parliamentary coup against her, documented in Petra Costa's Oscar-nominated film, Edge of Democracy. So The Observer had asked for Dilma to step aside, but all The Guardian was willing to do was to criticize Bolsonaro. That clearly shows that The Observer views Dilma as more of a threat to democracy, as more of a threat to Brazilians, maybe even the the world, than Michelle Temer or whatever, uh, whoever the right had on offer to replace Dilma, you know, that they thought that Dilma was more of a threat to to the country. Then the virus, what does that tell you about the observer or about people who are being critical or were critical of Dilma Rousseff when they see her as more of a threat than a president who is leading to, whose actions are leading to the deaths of Brazilians? Well, first of all, let's say Guardian Observer together. The Guardian also ran the Observer editorial uh, requesting Dilma to step down after Now, let's remember what she was accused of and later exonerated from Um, a a budget maneuver in which she shuffled um, costs from one governmental ministry to another to make it look like they were not in the red. That's all. You know, no money disappeared, no bribery. It wasn't even it was it's considered an infraction in Brazil. And it was legalized the day after she was impeached. And then um, she was later exonerated like she didn't even do it. Okay, that's what the Guardian and Observer were using to request that Dilma step down. All right. But Bolsonaro, who's like torching half the Amazon, committing genocide against indigenous peoples, you know, and um, letting thousands of people die from this virus. They're not asking him to step down. What they want to do is keep producing this friend of me coverage like CNN and MSNBC do with Trump, 
because it's it it sells papers, you know, and also they reflect the British government's geopolitical objectives. You know, my partner at Brazil Wire, Dan Hunt, uh, together with two writers from England, um, John McAvoy and Natalie Urban, um, they they filed for FOIA. They made FOIA requests in England and discovered that the British Foreign Office was having secret meetings with Bolsonaro and his kids in 2017. You know, like the British government wanted Bolsonaro to take office. You know, and one of the reasons is because they knew that if PT was elected, and if they had been elected, the crisis would be in a lot better shape right now. But if PT had been elected, they would have undone the petroleum privatizations to Shell and British Petroleum. You know, so the Guardian is just a reflection of uh, British geopolitical interests that uses this veneer of being liberal, kind of like the New York Times does. But when it comes down to actual supporting death of thousands of people to advance capitalist interests, like the New York Times and Thomas Friedman, you know, the Guardian will always side on the side of killing poor people, of death, of imperialism. And so it's a sham. The newspaper is a sham. That's the second time you mentioned uh, Thomas Friedman, and you quote him from a March 22nd op-ed piece in the New York Times that says, as with the flu, the vast majority will get over it in days, referring to the coronavirus. A small number will require hospitalization, and a very small percentage of the most vulnerable will tragically die. You add, the article continues by calling for an end to quarantines for the sake of the economy. Thomas Friedman is never held accountable. He writes opinion pieces on the opinion page of the New York Times. On March 22nd, he posted this. This was well after everybody knew how bad it was being, uh, the uh, virus was, uh, how bad the outbreak was. This is after Illinois went to shelter in place. This is after California went to shelter in place. This is after everybody was already taking it very seriously, but never being held accountable. So... I don't want to ask you why he's not hold, held accountable because we all know why he's not being held accountable. But how can there ever be a reckoning for this kind of really poorly informed opinion and pushing and promoting ideas that are dangerous to the lives of people? Well, Chuck, I think the I think Thomas Friedman should just die, frankly, because of all the people who've died because of you know him. Do you remember his? his op-ed piece in favor of Bush's Iraq invasion in which he chided his in, you know, fake quotation marks, leftist friends for not realizing how truly radical Bush's idea was to insert a humanistic and pluralistic democracy in the heart of the Middle East. You remember that? How many people died? Yeah. Where's the, where's his humanistic democracy in Iraq? Why doesn't he move there? and become a citizen and start participating in the democratic processes there that he propped up. So one of the things that we were talking about with a couple of writers from a Cosmonaut blog earlier this week was uh, that we might be making a mistake in only focusing on Trump when it comes to the poor response of uh, the coronavirus to the coronavirus. 
is because it's a bigger, more systemic problem that there a lot of the problems that uh, he has uh, been involved in would have been problems with possibly any president of the United States just because of the system that we have here in the United States. What do you think might be missed by those who do not like Bolsonaro in Brazil when they only focus all of their blame and responsibility for what's happened in Brazil on Bolsonaro? Well, I think um, it's a very different system between the U.S. and Brazil. Like when the State Department sent out a letter to all American citizens living in down here saying, we recommend you go back to the United States, I said, no way. I'd rather be in a country that has a universal access to public health. You know, and that's what we have here. So we don't have a situation where people aren't going to the doctors or the hospital because they're afraid they won't they'll go bankrupt. You know, like and or because they can't afford a co-payment or something. That doesn't exist down here. Even though the system is shitty. I'm sorry if I'm not allowed to swear on the radio here. <laughs> but um even if the system's not as good as it could be, you know. I think what the people criticizing Bolsonaro are leaving out is that Brazil does have a public health system. It does have one of the world's best institutes, networks of institutes for dealing with pandemics. It's been on the forefront of the fight against Zika virus and dengue for years. I mean, this institute, Fio Cruz, discovered Chagas disease. It was created to fight pandemics in favelas in 1900, you know. So, and that that system, that Brazil's system, which had in, had increased funding for 13 years in a row under the Lula and Dilma Rousseff administrations, and had made huge gains in increasing quality of coverage by importing Cuban doctors and everything, was systematically dismantled after Dilma Rousseff was thrown out of office. Not dismantled to the point where it's not working, okay? But you know, it law it it. It lost like a, a large portion of its funding and it lost doctors from the system because of this coup process that newspapers like The Guardian supported. You know, so instead of talking about systematic problems with the, with the public health in Brazil, there I've seen people saying even Glenn Greenwald said like, oh, the public health system is horrible in Brazil. Well, it's not. He's rich. He doesn't use it. I use it. Both my sons were born in public maternity hospitals in Brazil, in the Northeast, they don't even have public maternity hospitals in the US. You know, I've been using the public health system here for 25 years, right? It, it's a lot better than the US system in my, in my book. And there's big regional differences. It's not very good in Rio de Janeiro, but it, in Sao Paulo, it's working fine. And this is what they're missing when they come. I feel like the way that the um, the media, the Anglo media is covering Brazil is like it's a failed state with a maniac leader and the the um, the, ins the government institutions don't work, uh, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And oh, what a tragedy it is. There's no explanation for it. He's just evil. You know, when actually the very papers that are saying this were partially responsible for him coming to power and for normalizing his his electoral victory. The Atlantic article that I cite in the fair piece I did, um, one of the main commentators in there is this guy named Brian Winter from America, um, Council of the Americas, which is a Rockefeller-funded think tank that's been around in, since the 60s that supported every coup in Latin America, including in 1970, uh, they tried to bribe Chilean Senate with $500,000 to not ratify Salvador Allende taking office. 
they've been involved in all of these coups. And in 2017, they arranged behind closed doors meetings between Bolsonaro and his kids with U.S. business leaders. And this guy, Brian Winter, was like the interpreter in that meeting. And so now he's being called by The Atlantic, by The Guardian, by The New York Times as this kind of like go-to person to say bad things about Bolsonaro. Well, obviously, he's avoiding talking about all of the structural issues behind this that he and his think tank supported. You know, I think that's the problem. They've kind of like turned Brazil into this other country. And the ironic thing about it, Chuck, is that down here, they're doing a better job than in the United States at fighting coronavirus. Right now, the hospital system in Sao Paulo, which is 25% bigger than New York, which has a huge Italian population, regular flights back and forth to Italy, all the way leading up to the crisis, they're only sitting at 70% occupancy rate in their ICU units right now, right? And they predicted the system was going to crash by April 15th. And now they're saying, well, maybe at the end of May, right? Because like the quarantine down here seems to be working. So like, on the one hand, they're, they're trying to act like this savage other evil clown, you know, and Brazil's this failed nation state and all of this. But at the same time, what they're not saying is that, you know, a lot of places in Brazil are doing better than the U.S. right now. And this, the, the U.S. is actually the worst country in the world for coronavirus. And it's because the system up there is a joke. You know, it's a joke. It's a joke that the richest country in the world would have so many people afraid of going to the doctors because they might go into bankruptcy. So what is the state right now? Uh, and I'm going to uh, we'll wrap it up on this uh Brian, what is the state right now of the leadership within Brazil? Because we have this situation where Jair Bolsonaro said that he could revoke the quarantine. Then the Brazil Supreme Court rules that he doesn't have that power. You point out that all he has is really symbolic power, that all, and all he does is these symbolic things that really have no impact on policy. So does how much power does he have with that symbolic power? And who really is in charge of uh, Brazil right now? I mean, the other thing that's just so weird is that the Supreme Court releases Lula, which is great, then turns on Bolsonaro here. It seems, uh, do you feel safe from Bolsonaro? Do you feel safe from the mistakes that might happen with COVID-19 because you have a Supreme Court who's going to protect you? Um, that, and I feel safe because of the governors. I feel safe because of this scumbag governor we have, who I hate, but now <laughs> I kind of have to sort of like him because he's, I mean, he's, t he's taken out these wonderful commercials asking people to stay at home from the state government. Like he's saying, look, we can fix the economy later. Don't worry about the economy, stay at home. You know, that's wonderful to see. And, you know, we have some governors like Maranhão, which is the poorest state in Brazil has a communist governor who's like, they've set up fever taking stations at all entry and exit points from the state. They set up the first free coronavirus testing center when they only had two cases in the state. You know, and he's like, Bolsonaro created an embargo where nobody can deal with the Chinese anymore. And he, he circumvented Bolsonaro's embargo and just brought a couple hundred respirators into the state. Just ignored. So the governors are kind of like ignoring the president. It looks like a group of military people are kind of running the operational side of the presidency right now, which is still pretty bad, you know, but it's better than Bolsonaro, maybe. Um, and then he's just left to do his clown routine, which is 
it's disappointing that they haven't shut that down as well because he's still going out in public and walking around and not wearing a mask and kissing babies and hugging people on the street and telling people to go back to work. That's reckless. And the military, if they are really running the operational side of things, that's a massive failure on their, their point of view. But, but it's just clearer and clearer that uh, Bolsonaro is not really in charge of very much. He's just a clown character now. It sounds very similar to a situation that I'm familiar with. Uh, just one last question, I guess. I just wanted to ask you one more thing. Do you fear that there's going to be an expansion of, of authoritarianism uh, permanently after the coronavirus, after the pandemic has hopefully gone away, uh, as people are concerned in places like uh, in Hungary with Viktor Orban? Do you fear that the military, uh, the military may expand their powers and may make the country even more authoritarian permanently after the coronavirus? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I'm worried about that. At the same time, like, I don't think authoritarianism in Brazil would ever have the same face as authoritarianism in a place like Hungary. Because if you read, I don't know if you ever read Brave New World back in the old days with Huxley. Yeah. Huxley's, um, well, remember, there's this, these areas of the cities where the plebs live, where the government doesn't do its surveillance and everything. And that's the one space of freedom the main character finds. It's just the bourgeois that's all locked down. I feel like that's kind of like the situation they do in Brazil. They just do some economic calculations, say, okay, we're just going to lock down the middle-class neighborhoods. Brian, on that note, it's always great to hear from you. Uh, you were, the last time you were on was back in November. Everybody can hear all of our uh, correspondence with you at our website, thisishell.com. All you have to do is search on Brian's name, M-I-E-R. Stay in good health, my friend. We'll be bugging you in the very near future because uh, I want to get caught up on more of what's happening in South America. I always appreciate your reports. Thank you so much for being on our show again. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who subscribe in a moment, as well as have a moment of truth. We'll remind you of this week's hangover cure. Thank everyone who was on this week's shows and share with you what's happening on the show next week. During this week's moment of truth, which is coming up shortly, Contributor Jeff Dorchin shares part two of The Good Doctor, the four-part fictional expose of a man who betrayed his calling in exchange for fame and fortune. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing. This week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question mail is, what are you staying six feet from? What are you staying six feet from? The person with our favorite answer this week gets 10. This is how subvertising stickers. Alex, do you have more answers to this week's question mail? Yeah, I got to go fast so I don't get yelled at by my wife. Aaron B. says, the bowl at the other end of my six-foot bong. <laughs> what are you six feet away from? Mike M. says, oh, Mike, I'm six feet away from being a spider. <laughs> Terrible, the octopus joke was the same joke. I liked them both. MGB says six feet away from my rights to go outside and die. At least that's what conservatives keep telling me. Chase D says figuring it all out. I'm coming for you, Ned. Louis D says six feet away from lunch. Courtney A says from having eight feet. Do spiders have feet? <laughs> Do spiders? I don't know. If I... Justin H says Biden trying to smell my virus. <laughs> uh, Braden S says the edge. I am in the front row at a U2 concert. Ouch. What are you six feet away Ouch. from? MTB says, no joke. The left media are rapidly in the process of losing this, just like they did in 2008, listening to neo-lib malarkey while the left are holding their 
Dingles. <laughs> Waiting for the next ordinance from Pope Fauci. Ordinary working people are being mobilized by the right. 90% of people have little to no symptoms from this virus. How long before they revolt on this one? And who will be wrangling them? Did you see Michigan today? The question, <laughs> by the way, is... What are you six feet away from? What are you six feet away from? Uh, L. Benjamin L. B. says nothing. I am he who is called I am. Andrea J. says your mom. Uh, yeah. Sam B. says being some kind of human octopus hybrid. Debs B. from this week's show says ask not for whom the bell tolls. For soon, for soon it shall toll for you. Yeah, that's awesome. The question, although, is what are you six feet away from? What are you six feet away from? John C. says the shovel that is tossing dirt on my coffin. Graham M. says what am I six feet away from? An answer. Austin RM says the oh so enticing big red button. Eric T says my feet and two last responses. <laughs> Nate B says a dollar bill being dangled in front of me on a fishing hook. Oh damn, a dollar bill. Where? <laughs> and finally, Jeffy D says I'm always six feet away from winning a This Is Hell coffee mug for my answer to this question from hell, which I always vainly hope is somehow so great that it neutralizes the prohibition on regular correspondence winning this week's question from hell. I'm sorry, you have to read your contract there, Jeffy. On Patreon this week, it's the final chapter in my series of monologues describing the several times I've been stopped at the U.S.-Canada border while holding, while in possession, while being dirty. The first time, unbeknownst to me, the car I was riding in had a bumper sticker that said pot smokers have bigger joints. The second time, I used an octogenarian as a mule. So yeah, the stories are getting scummier. My apologies, or you are welcome, depending on how you... Much you enjoy stories of my earlier, far more scumbaggier life. So, Alex, what is the interview that we will be playing tomorrow on Patreon? Uh, we're talking with Scott Horton about his Harper's piece, Justice After Bush, Prosecuting an Outlaw Administration. So I sent Alex some suggestions of interviews we did immediately after Obama was elected in 2008 and before he took office with guests who did not have much hope for any change under Obama. And you'll be hearing that interview with Scott Horton talking about how the Bush administration should have been prosecuted for lying us into a war and then torturing people, which is against the law. But of course, the Obama administration dropped the ball on that and didn't hold anyone responsible. But you can only hear that if you subscribe to completely listener-supported This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. During the moment of truth right now from contributor Jeff Dorchin, Jeff shares part two of The Good Doctor. We'll also read the rest of your answers to this week's question from Mel, announce our favorite and the winner of this week's prize. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was really high. This is hell. I know you, FFA on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The Good Doctor, Second Dose. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. When we last left our fictional protagonist, Dr. Dave Pitkiss, the Drew Pinsky doppelganger of this four-part Romana Clé, a radio producer in L.A. had just had an idea to pair medical advice with adolescent stoner commentary. Mel Canola was in heavy rotation on off nights and as an opener at the Laugh Factory Comedy Club on Sunset, just a block or two east of the Strip proper. Let's face it, everything east of the Chateau Marmont is not really a strip. Y you can't say Zanku Chicken is on the Strip. Canola was a real workhorse. 
He had a palette of embarrassing real-life situations he put to good use or harnessed into service as one of those self-deprecating comics. Paired with Dr. Dave on the radio show, which was now broadcast out of L.A. with the name Dope Line, and for which both were paid, Mel spoke with the voice of the regular guy who understood the stupid urges of teenagers and probably would have been in the same mess as many of them if he'd had the opportunity or the balls when he was their age. Dr. Dave would warn Mel of the dangers of this or that behavior. However fun it might seem on TV or in Grand Theft Auto or in the sexy mass culture mythology and give the teenager under scrutiny advice on how to get out of the mess he or she was in. And Mel would say something like, Still, I wouldn't mind hitting some of that. Sounds like James here has it pretty good, diddling two broads. And Dr. Dave would say, No, 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 you really don't want to do that. Not without a condom and not with a minor. By teenager, incidentally, I mean to include the numerous 20-somethings who called in with the emotional problems of teenagers. The mean age of the callers rose and fell, but their median emotional age hovered at around 16. Dr. Dave was the name he went by, as he does to this day. He was called Dr. Dave even when he testified before a congressional committee on the advantages of treatment-based approaches to fighting illegal drug use as opposed to the punitive kind favored by the smaller government mentality that had come into vogue in Washington. Punishment doesn't cure addiction, so ultimately does nothing to shrink demand for illicit drugs, Dr. Dave testified. Under what other circumstances do we punish someone for being sick? You can't punish the measles out of someone. That person is still going to spread the measles. A word about Dr. Dave's charitable attitude toward addicts at this stage in his degradation. An ex-girlfriend of mine's best friend was friends with a cousin of Dr. Dave, and she was at a dinner at Toscana, at which the cousin and Dr. Dave were both present, and this cousin had brought her fiancé, who was working in the emergency room at County Hospital, and this fiancé got to talking about how many junkies he saw, ODing or in withdrawal or infected with HIV, about whom the fiancé said, God, they are so stupid. These people are just stupid. And my ex-girlfriend's friend said, Dr. Dave got kind of upset when his cousin's fiancé said this. And Dr. Dave said to the fiancé, You're a little young to be speaking that callously about it. Those people are your patients, and you have no idea what led them to that condition. And you, you have not earned the right to call those people stupid. And I don't know if anyone ever earns that right, no matter how long they live. That is a screwed-up attitude, and I want to dissuade you from it right now or words to that effect. There was a certain pragmatism to Dr. Dave's approach on the radio. If he could bring a caller around to a small discovery that might help, he would go for that over blanket condemnation of the caller's entire life as he or she was currently living it. And in the first few years of the commercially syndicated show, he never resorted to ad hominem attacks, even after the call was ended. It was all the more admirable since at this time, Dr. Terry Toynbee, my fictional equivalent of Dr. Laura, was making a huge splash with her tough talk, calling people idiots, losers, weaklings, and really laying into them. She claimed to take her moral authority straight from the Bible, so she called homosexuality a disease. 
It had a nice marketable ring to it when Rush Limbaugh was rising to his full power. And yet, in an early profile on some fluffy pseudo-news program, Dr. Dave described Dopeline as a conservative show sneaking into popular youth culture below the radar. His advice was typically anti-experimentation vis-a-vis sex and drugs, especially for those below the age of 18. But the good doctor's decision to characterize safe sex and anti-drug abuse advice as conservative was puzzling. Radical gay activists, radicalized by the Reagan administration's negligent and victim-blaming attitude during the AIDS epidemic, had spearheaded the national safe sex discussion. People Dr. Drew knew, and knew to have been very supportive of his early column and radio program, yet during the rise of a right-wing movement destined to all but destroy just about everything he stood for up to the point of his radio success, Dr. Dave seemed to be attempting, however subtly, to throw his lot in with exactly that right-wing movement, or at least not to be seen as pushing back against it. He may have done so in the belief that the right-wing madness, which had seen to it that every 18th word uttered on network television was America, would only let his show survive if it was understood as fitting into the mad project. Or he may have done so because he was preparing to one day get aboard that crazy gravy train. Throughout the early years of Dopeline, Dr. Dave dispensed sensible advice while Mel made it palatable to the hip youth of the day with his colloquial diction and fart jokes. But at the time, just after the Gingrich conservatives took over Congress, in the mid to late 90s, something began to shift. That something was not in Dr. Dave, but in Mel. Mel started to behave as if by sitting next to a doctor in a studio every night, he had accumulated some diagnostic and therapeutic expertise. He began to speak less like the id who jokingly wants to engage in bad behavior and more like the id who wants to tell people with problems that they're morons. Dr. Dave then had the straight man's burden, still comical, of not only dispensing real, useful information against the contrast of Mel's crude, humorous ignorance, but also of representing compassion against Mel's jaded mockery of the feeble-minded wretches who called in. What was it that would eventually draw Dr. Dave into the very same jaded mindset? It's true, Mel was not a stupid guy, nor was he entirely unappealing. He was a funny guy although his humor emerged nearly unadulterated from his all-too-real emotional life. He had taken to the role of foul-mouthed, adolescent-minded loser like a germ to mucus. He enjoyed himself. That enjoyment was infectious. Dr. Dave didn't really grok Mel for the first few years of their partnership, but since the partnership was working, earning them both, both of them money and celebrity... And Mel was a friend. He'd become a real friend. The good doctor was along for the ride and with no complaint. It was not long after the below-the-radar remark that Dr. Dave and Mel had a breakthrough in their relationship. Up to then, Dave had played the logical Spock to Mel's Homer Simpson. But then this happened, and I saw it. I was running the board in the studio during a show, and during a break, Dr. Dave was jotting down some notes when Mel said, I'm gonna take a shit. Can you take control of the headphones? That's fair. I take a shit. You take control. So we're both taking something. Isn't that fair? Splitting the take? Dr. Dave laughed. 
No one looks quite as insane as Mr. Spock does when he laughs and jumps for joy, especially at the end of the Amok Time episode when it turns out Spock hasn't, in a state of ponfar, killed Captain Kirk in the battle demanded by Spock's bonded mate T'Pring, who set up the fight by making the Khalifi challenge. Dr. Dave laughed and for the first time allowed himself to hear past the profanity and get the joke. That was some clever wordplay, he must have thought. I like this guy, Mel Canola. He's got something on the ball. Not sure what yet, but something. In the next chapter, we'll find out what that something was and just how far over into the dark side it would take Mel and Dave when I continue to part three of The Good Doctor. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Jeff, we have a word of the week care of Remy Debs Bruno and Medway Baker's article at Cosmonaut Blog on COVID-19. This week's word is the verb cosset, C-O-S-S-E-T, cosset. Jeff, do you know or would you like to guess as to what cosset means? I think it means like to to protect from harm unduly as if the... Uh person or thing is a fragile individual look at you smarter than me in fact here it is to care for and protect in an <laughs> overindulgent way very good jeffy very good good for oh you my, my friend so oh, do i win a mug um anyway i'm sorry uh, we're having a very bad connection here jeff <laughs> <laughs> all right well go tell alex to save his wife all right have a good week all right stay beautiful YouTube. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, do we have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Uh, F5-ing? No, that was it. All right, so my answer to this week's question from Hell, what are you staying six feet from? What are you staying six feet from? When Alex first asked this week, the first thing that popped into my head was the future. But what I'm really staying six feet from is... Everything in my neighborhood, as what is known as West Ridge, is ground zero for confirmed cases of COVID-19, not only in the city of Chicago, but the entire state of Illinois, although Cook County Jail might be doing worse. So, sorry neighbors, if I'm not all that neighborly right now, because I'm definitely going to stay six feet away from all of my neighbors. The answers I liked the most this week were Sam saying that he's six feet from being some kind of human-octopus hybrid. Mike following up on that, and somebody else as well. Mike saying that I'm six feet away from being a spider. Uh, Brian, six feet away from the toilet, realizing why that bidet attachment was only 12 bucks. Chandler saying not away from his co-workers were packed in like sardines in the post office. Nick saying ever learning how to dunk. That's what he's six feet away from. Garrett saying my astral projection. Sebastian saying Karen... I don't know, Alex. I don't know what to do. I, I really like Sebastian's answer of Karen. Yeah, it's Karen. But I kind of want to give it to Chandler because he's working in a post office packed in with like sardines. If you work at a post office. You can just take stuff that people put in the mail. Well, that's a good point. So he's give, every day's a prize for, for him. But uh... So heads up, uh, Chandler, we're going to be sending a package to Sebastian, uh, <laughs> and it's going to be from This Is Hell. So if you would like the prize, you could just take that. I know it's a federal crime, but that's not my problem. So our winner to this week's question from Hell is Sebastian, whose answer... What are you staying six feet away from was Karen. 
You've won 10 This Is Hell advertising stickers. All you have to do is send us your mailing address via Facebook, and we'll put it in the mail as soon as possible. Happy slats, everybody. It's 11-11. Alex, who's on the show next week starting with Monday's live streaming show at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time. On Monday, Cindy Milstein will be back on the show to talk about her book, Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy. Really excited about that one. How about Tuesday? On Tuesday, Robert Nichols will be on to talk about his book, Theft is Property, Dispossession and Critical Theory. Awesome. And uh, Wednesday, Hamid Dabashi will be on to talk about his new book, The Emperor is Naked, on the inevitable demise of the nation state. Didn't he have an article that we were talking about? Hamid Dabashi? Yeah. I don't know. And what about Thursday? Still working on that, uh, but Jeffy. Jeffy will be here, of course, thanks to this week's guest, Black Agenda Reports' Danny Haifang, who is on to talk about his article, Bernie Sanders' Exit from the Race is Not Betrayal. It's a reality check. You can find out more about Danny and all of his writing by going to blackagendareport.com, and you can find our interviews with Danny at thisishell.com. He was on last year to talk about his book, American Exceptionalism and an American Innocence, so you can hear that interview as well at thisishell.com. Thanks to Remy Debs Bruno and Medway Baker, co-authors of The Cosmos. Not magazine article on COVID-19 and 21st century fascism called The End of the End of History. You can find that at cosmonaut.blog. Thanks also goes out to Malcolm Harris, author of Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History. <clears throat> you can follow Malcolm on Twitter at Big Mean Internet. He was on back in 2017 to talk about his book, Kid These Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. Sheesh. And you can find that also at thisishell.com. And finally, thanks to today's guest editor and correspondent, Brian Muir. You can find all of Brian's work by following him on Twitter, at Brian M. Telliser. This week's Hangover Cure is the Sonoran Hot Dog. And Alex says that if you're up here on the far north side of Chicago, you can find something similar to it at El Corrito at Peterson and Lincoln, which is still doing delivery and outside pickup. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when I will tell you about the final times I had run ends at the U.S.-Canada border while carrying some amazing contraband. And we'll share our interview from 2008 with Scott Horton, where Scott was talking about whether the Obama administration would be prosecuting the Bush administration for lying us into war and, you know, torturing people. Not that that happened. Up to see all of you sometime in the future at This Is Hell Office Hours that we will have again someday in the future on Fridays when this nightmare is over. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing Alex Jerry. As always, we would, could not do this show without Alex, without Jeff, without Ronaldo, without Theron. And without Richard Norwood, we would not be able to be doing the archived shows that we play on, archived interviews that we play during our Friday Patreon podcast. So thanks to Richard as well. And special thanks to a listener, Stell, who gave us a MacBook this week. So then we're going to be able to stream a lot better in the future. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.